Uh, if you have a Bible, turn it, turn to Matthew chapter 5, which is in what we call the New Testament, a collection of writings about the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 5. And if you can't get there fast enough, it's okay. We are going to have the words up on the screen. But here's what I want to invite us to do. This is a little bit different for us. But something about reading this text out loud is more impactful than having it read to you. Something about actually reading these words allows you to focus and hone in and hear things that you didn't hear before. So what I want to invite you to do is just stand up with me, and we're going to read this together. And if you're nervous about, oh, what if I have a different translation or whatever, words up on the screen, let's read it. We're going to read verse 1 all the way through to verse 16. You ready? All right, here we go. Verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven." For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can take a seat. When you think of the blessed life, when you think of a life filled with blessing, what are some of the things that start to come into your your brains as you try to paint out that picture of our culture's vision of the blessed life? Uh, To help you out with this, I did some research on Twitter uh, this week to, you know, hashtag blessed, what does the world say about this? And here's some things that stood out. Uh, The first, I, I ordered four crispy chicken strips from the airport, McDonald's, and got five. So hashtag blessed. Uh, yeah, that's pretty great. The vending machine gave me two chip bags when I only asked for one. Hashtag blessed. Dream car at 19. Hashtag blessed. That's pretty awesome. My uh, car at 19 was a Dodge Dynasty, um, which is not a very cool car. Uh, so not hashtag blessed for me. Uh, 345 pounds is my new squat max. The man above is crazy when he by your side. Hashtag blessed. It's amazing. My flight to Chicago this morning isn't full and the seat next to me is empty. Hashtag blessed. Anybody get excited about that? It's amazing. Here's a good one. I got accepted into graduate school today with scholarships. It literally made my month. Hashtag blessed. And then this one is kind of not as cool. My first follower on Twitter. 
thankful and hashtag blessed. That's our culture's vision of the blessed life, isn't it? It's to be fortunate. It's to have good things happen to you. It's to be lucky where these great things just occur in your life. It's to get your dream car. It's to ask that girl out and she says yes. It's to have something fun happen where all of a sudden you get that raise or the job that you've been hoping you would get or you land the, the, the spouse, or you land the whatever. You get the house, you get the place, you get the money, you become successful, you become powerful, you become someone with prestige, someone of value in our culture. Like that's what our world would say. That's the blessed life. And here's what's really crazy if you think about this. In Jesus' culture, they had their own version of the Beatitudes. So our culture has Beatitudes, right? Our culture says, if you get on Instagram, here's the Beatitudes that you need in your life to live the blessed life. If you go to the mall, this is the blessed life and all the stores and what it can provide for you. If you go to the store today and you look at the magazine racks, that's the Beatitudes that our world is offering you. But in Jesus's culture, they had some Beatitudes too. So 200 years before Jesus entered the scene, uh, there was a Jewish writing that was circulating called Sirach. And Sirach list out a different set of Beatitudes, a little bit different than our culture today, but nonetheless, in their society, these were like the blessed life things. These are the things that you want. These are the things that you aspire to. Let me read it to you. I can think of nine whom I would call blessed, and a tenth my tongue proclaims. A man who can rejoice in his children, right? You've got kids, and you're actually happy about that, then you're blessed. Uh, A man who lives to see the downfall of his foes, So you have some enemies in your life and they fail, then you're blessed. Happy the man who lives with a sensible wife. Got to have one of those, right? Uh, And the one who does not plow with the ox and the ass together. Because who wants to do that? I mean, that's just the worst when you have to do that. Happy is the one who does not sin with the tongue. So you speak well and and, and you, you speak in a way that's positive. And the one who has not served an inferior. So instead of being someone that uh, has to bend down and serve someone else, you are actually such power, uh, a person of power and prestige that other people serve you. Happy is the one who finds a friend and the one who speaks to attentive listeners How great is the one who finds wisdom, but none is superior to the one who fears the Lord. Now, there's some good ones in there, for sure. There's some okay ones in there. But this culture, in Jesus' day, similar to ours, was holding out a set of beatitudes, saying, hey, do you want the blessed life? Then here's what it is. You've got to be a man. You've got to be married. You've got to have kids. You need to have wealth, and you need to prosper. You need to have prestige and power. You need to be able to walk into a room and have people hanging on every word that you say, right? You need to be well-spoken and you need to have friends and all these things. This is what in Jesus's culture, they were holding out as the blessed life, a set of beatitudes. And yet, here's what's really crazy. What if our culture today and their culture then got it all wrong? What if what they were saying the blessed life was and what our world is telling us what the blessed life is, is completely, totally wrong? wrong. We've been in a series, started last week, a series on the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to be living inside of for about 14 weeks. And, and if you don't know what the Sermon on the Mount is, this is the very first sermon that Jesus ever preached. Think of it as his state of the universe address. It's the closest thing that we have to a, a manifesto of what his kingdom would be like. It's Matthew 5 through 7. It's, it's a sermon that he climbs this mountain and in this place of authority, he begins to teach a new way to be human. And it's the most subversive thing that I've ever read. And in 
in this sermon, Jesus wants to say some things that feel very, very opposite of what our culture says is the blessed life. So just look at this. This is Jesus's hashtag blessed list in verse two. And he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and they persecute you and they utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Is this not a bizarre list? When you read this, don't you go, this doesn't feel like a life of blessing. This doesn't feel like a, a, a life. This feels like death. This doesn't feel positive. This feels negative. This is a bizarre list. And to make it even more bizarre, you need to understand what that word blessing actually means. Because it doesn't mean what you think. There is not an English equivalent for the Greek word that's used here for blessing. The, the word that's used is makarios. Everybody say makarios. All right, very good. You did great. So makarios, what does that mean? Well, what's hard about it is there's not an English word that directly translates into this word. So the closest that we could get was blessing. Some translations, maybe you have this translation, some will say happy is the one. Some might say flourishing is the one. But the problem is there's no English equivalent for this word. And the idea behind this word is that it's, it's a word that means you are living the good life, right? You're actually enjoying a life filled with the, the goods that, that everybody is craving. This is the good life. In fact, this word makarios is something that you would say to congratulate some, someone if something positive happened to them. Oh, congratulations on your baby, makarios on the birth of your baby. Oh, you just got married? Makarios. Oh, you just landed your dream job? Makarios. And so what Jesus is saying is really fascinating. Think about this. He's showing up in this culture that says, here's what the blessed life is. And he's showing up in our culture that says, here's what the blessed life is. And he goes, no, 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 all of that's wrong. I want to tell you what the blessed life is. Here's what it is. It's when you're poor in spirit. It's when you're mourning. It's when people are on Facebook gossiping about you and slandering you and harassing you at your workplace because you're a follower of Jesus. You are living the blessed life. This is bizarre. Now, to fully understand why this is so impactful, you need to understand who Jesus is talking to. Who is he saying all of these t things to? And who, who is he giving away this idea, and this vision of this blessed life to? So look at it in Matthew 5. Look at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, so keep that in your minds. He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. Seeing the crowds. What crowds? We'll go back to chapter 4. Look at chapter 4 at the very end, verse 23. You've got to remember that when Matthew was written, it's not like Matthew was like, all right, that's it with chapter 4. Now, chapter 5, verse 1. That's not how he wrote. He was just writing the story. So we don't have this chapter breakdown. Who is the crowds that Jesus is, is saying, I want to tell you who the blessed people are. Well, look at chapter 4, verse 23. And Jesus went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and look at this, and they brought him, who? The sick, 
those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, and those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Now look at this. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and from the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So here's what you have. Jesus kicks off his public ministry and he starts to heal people and soon word begins to spread and now people are grabbing the sick and those who uh, are being oppressed by demons and the paralytics and the epileptics and all these people. And these great crowds of people are starting to throng and follow Jesus and gather around. And so Jesus, he's seeing those crowds and he climbs up on the mountain and he gathers his disciples near and he says, I want to tell you who the blessed people are. It's not the people at the top. It's actually those who are at the bottom. So what are the Beatitudes? Well, here's what I want you to realize. The the Beatitudes, first thing, these are kingdom reversals. What Jesus is doing in this list is coming to the kingdom of the world and saying, you have it all wrong. Because in my kingdom, It's an upside-down kingdom, and those who are at the bottom are actually the ones at the top. And those that think they're at the top, that don't have any needs, that are full, they're actually the ones at the bottom. What Jesus is doing here is a gospel announcement, because in this culture, if you were sick, if you had a demon, if if, if you were having seizures, or or if you couldn't walk or whatever, then you you were considered ceremonially unclean. So not only were you on the bottom rung of society, but even among Jewish culture, you weren't even allowed to enter the temple because you lived in a perpetual state of uncleanness. So these are people that are desperate. These are people that don't have anything. These are the people that are poor, both physically poor, but then emotionally and spiritually, they don't have anything to hope in. And no one has ever, ever, ever looked at them and said, oh yeah, you're living the blessed life. And then Jesus shows up and he says, hey, I've got a good news announcement. I've got a gospel announcement. If you feel like you're on the bottom, if you feel like you are struggling, if you feel like you are sick and oppressed and unclean, and you are, you are the, the, the abject failures of society, well, here's the good news. In my kingdom, those who are at the bottom, they actually become on the top. This is an upside-down kingdom reversal. John Stott says it this way. He says, thus, right at the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus contradicted all human judgments and all nationalistic expectations of the kingdom of God The kingdom is given to the poor, not the rich. The feeble, not the mighty. To little children humble enough to accept it, not to soldiers who boast that they can obtain it by their prowess. In our Lord's own day, it was not the Pharisees who entered the kingdom, the religious leaders of his day, who thought they were rich, so rich in merit or good works that they thanked God for their attainments, nor the zealots who dreamed of establishing the kingdom by blood and sword. But look at this. It was for publicans and prostitutes, the rejects of human society, who knew they were so poor they could offer nothing and achieve nothing. All they could do was to cry to God for mercy, and he heard their cry. The thing that you need to see about the Beatitudes is that Jesus wants to flip on its head what culture says is the blessed life. Now, let me tell you something that's really scary and personally terrifying for me. Living in America and living in the Bible Belt, it's shocking and terrifying how easy it is to, in many ways, enjoy all the benefits of a kingdom, but forget about the king altogether, isn't it? 
It's really easy to just get to this comfortable place of life where we've got the house that we want, and we've got the family that we want, or the job that we want, or the, the car that we finally want, or whatever. We've finally gotten some of the stuff and the toys and whatever, and now we're just kind of numbing out. And instead of feeling this deep desire and need for a king and a kingdom outside of what we can do in our own power, we just start to coast in life, and we become almost drunk on the world's vision of the good life. If this doesn't feel like good news to you, it's because Jesus is the only sober one in the room. And he's coming to a group of people that are just guzzling the world's vision of the good life down. And he's saying, no, 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 no. You're missing it. It's really possible, and this is terrifying to me as a pastor and as a Christian, it's really, really possible to be so enamored with the world's vision of the good life that you become numb to the reality of your desperate need for a rescue and someone to come and forgive you, and someone to do this, flip your world upside down. It's really, really possible. In fact, uh, what's really interesting to me is this word makarios, that we translate blessing. The opposite of makarios is not cursing. You would think it'd be cursing, but the opposite of this word is a woe. It's woes. Jesus actually gives a set of woes in Luke 6. Let me just read this to you. He says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Here's what's so scary of what Jesus is saying, and we have to wrestle with this. He's saying, if you want a kingdom, but without the king, well, you can have it, but be warned, woe to you, because I'm the only sober one in the room, and you're all drunk on the vision of the good life. One day, even though you feel full now, you're going to be empty. Oh, you feel okay now? You feel like you don't have any needs? You feel like you're self-sustainable? You feel like you have all that you want in yourself? Woe to you because I am bringing an upside-down kingdom. But if you are here and you feel your need, if you are here and you feel your lack, if you are here and you look inside and you don't have anything to hope in in yourself whatsoever, if you are here and instead of looking inside and seeing righteousness and goodness and morality, if you look inside and you just see addiction and brokenness and sin and, and you're crying out for a rescuer, you're crying out for someone to come and save you, then blessed are you because yours is the kingdom of heaven. I'm actually coming to do this. This is the teaching of Jesus. He's turning the world upside down. So what are the Beatitudes? Well, the first thing that you need to see about the Beatitudes, these are kingdom reversals where Jesus comes to the ones that everybody else has written off, both uh, physically and spiritually poor, and he's coming to them and he's saying, hey, I'm actually going to bring the blessed life to you. And if you think you've got the blessed life without me, then woe to you. Here's the second thing, because there's more happening than just a set of blessings. Jesus is also giving us a vision here for how to live. So the second thing that the Beatitudes are doing for us, they're giving us a kingdom ethic, right? Now, here's what's not happening. What's not happening is Jesus coming and saying, hey, if you want entrance into the kingdom, then you've got to do these things. You've got to do this, you've got to do this. You gotta... That's not what's happening here, right? And Jesus isn't also giving us, uh, if you do this, uh, fill in the blank, then you'll be blessed. He's not doing that either. So what is Jesus doing? Well, look at who Jesus is speaking to, and this will help you understand what's happening here. In Matthew 5, verse 1 and 2, 
Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Who came to him? It was his disciples. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them. So who is he actually teaching? Not the crowds in general. They're overhearing his teaching. But Matthew makes a distinction. You've got the crowds, and you've got the disciples. And what Jesus is doing is he's pointing to the crowds, and he's saying, hey, the world has written them off, but I actually say that they're living the blessed life because I'm reversing their status in my kingdom. And now what he's doing is giving his disciples a kingdom ethic or a new way to be human, how to live in the way of Jesus in the world. So when you hear kingdom ethic, here's what I want you to hear. I want you to hear living the way of Jesus in the world. Because what Jesus is doing here is basically coming to us and he's saying, hey, forget everything you've ever thought. Forget all the things that you think you know about life as a human being. His Sermon on the Mount is the new grid for how to live the way of Jesus in the world. And look at what he says. I'm not going to go through all of these beatitudes. I'm just going to hit a few uh, that we, we tend to gloss over. He says, I want you to be meek. He talks about the meek inheriting the earth. I know that all of you woke up today and you're like, I just want to be meek. That's like the one thing I want. No, none of you did that today. No one woke up praying that uh, meekness would be a character trait that they embody in their world today. Nobody did that. And yet Jesus highlights this as something that's really, really beautiful and a way of life for us. The meek. What does it mean to be meek? Well, uh, Frederick Brunner, he translates this word, the little people. The meek are the little people. They're the people that you gloss over. They're the people that when we uh, did introductions just a minute ago and and turned and, and greeted one another and gave high fives and hugs, the meek are the ones that nobody did that to. The meek are the ones that have a power They have influence, but they're not arrogant or oppressive with it. They don't throw their weight around, is another way to say it. This is a value that Jesus has for people in the kingdom, the meek, because they're the ones who inherit the earth. Here's another one. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. What does that mean? Well, to hunger and thirst for righteousness means that you are are longing to be right with God and right with other people in your life. This is the way of Jesus in the world, to hunger and thirst, to be right with God and right with other people. Uh, They hunger for righteousness because they don't have it. If you're hungry for food, it's because you don't have any food. If you're hungry and thirsty for righteousness, it's because you lack righteousness and you're, you're going to the Lord for that. Here's another one, the merciful the way of mercy. It's someone who steps into the world and brings compassion and doesn't uh, grab the sin of others and throw it back in their face. And, and it's more than just being forgiving. It's literally giving away mercy and compassion to the people in your life. The merciful. He talks about the pure in heart. The pure in heart. People that don't just want to conform to some external law, but actually at the core of who they are, they long to be pure in heart. This is the way of Jesus in the world for his followers. He mentions the peacemakers. Do you know what the opposite of being a peacemaker is? It's being a war maker. We're not war makers as Christians. Christians are peacemakers. Not only does that mean that you're a peaceful presence as you enter into the world, but you are actually finding places where there are not peace and you are bringing peace. And I know that this is the way that we live on Facebook, right? We're peacemakers on social media. No, we're not, right? We're war makers. And here's what happens when someone does you wrong, whether it's on social media or in real life or while you're driving, you know, on the highway. If someone does you wrong, then our first natural instinct is to be a war maker. 
It's to retaliate. It's to respond with aggression. And yet Jesus is saying, no, the way of Jesus in the kingdom is you are a peacemaker, not a war maker. Nonviolence, seeking reconciliation with your enemies. This is not some hippie command that we got in 1960. This is something Jesus valued and gave away as the way of his life and his kingdom 2,000 years ago. Peacemakers, that was the way the early church lived for 350 years. And it, it was one of the reasons why they grew so much because instead of just loving their friends and the people that treated them kind, kindly, they actually loved their enemies and brought peace even when they were being persecuted. It's powerful. And then he ends with these two that we all love, those who are persecuted for righteousness sake and those who are reviled, persecuted, and slandered on Jesus' account. Now, here's what's interesting about that. Um, Two things. The first is um, that he ends his list of Beatitudes with this. Like you would think, and if you really live this way, everybody in the world's just going to love you. You're going to be like the sweetest person in the world and people are just going to really like you because, oh, you're so merciful and you're you're a peacemaker and you're not violent. And so people are just going to really be drawn to you. No, what Jesus says is if you actually live this way and you're pure in heart and you hunger and thirst for righteousness, the world's going to hate you. They're going to hate you. If you actually live this way, then rather than you being accepted, it's going to draw a line in the sand where some people are going to be intrigued by your God and other people are going to write you off as someone who is crazy or outdated or oppressive. Here's what's so bizarre, that Jesus ends his list with these two things. And this is uh, helpful for us because I think in our culture, especially in Oklahoma, we tend to think of people who are being persecuted for Jesus' sake as people who live overseas. And they are absolutely being persecuted for Jesus' sake. In China, there's ridiculous persecution right, right now. Uh, in, in India, you know, uh, one of our pastors is about to head to India to plant a church in Mumbai. The, the opposition to the gospel and to Christianity is blatant and it is strong and it is physical opposition against Christianity. There's a real threat of physical violence for Christians right now. And yet in Oklahoma, so we read this and we go, oh, this isn't for us. But actually it is for us too because he, he broadens and expands it. He says, it's not just those who are persecuted, it's those who are reviled. Has anyone ever reviled you? Maybe at your job for being a Christian? Has anyone ever slandered you? They've spoken some untrue things about you on Facebook. Has that ever happened? Well, that counts too in the eyes of God. This is helpful. John Tyson says this. He says, America is in some ways a schizophrenic culture when it comes to religion and public life. Every presidential candidate is asked about their personal faith, but if they ever really built policies around the Sermon on the Mount, there might be a second American Civil War. Can you imagine? Are you a follower of Jesus? Yes. What would you like to do in office? Well, I've been reading the Sermon on the Mount, and I thought we could try that. Rah! Outrage! Virtually every culturally engaged Christian in America today feels that tension in our jobs, in our communities, and in the broader cultural conversation. Look at this. Personal faith is welcome, but expressing our convictions or espousing ideas as truth in public is uncouth at best and often taken as coercive, intolerant, or even threatening. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. If you take these Beatitudes seriously and you see them not just as kingdom reversals, but actually kingdom ethics, things that you and I are called to live inside of and live into, if you see these Beatitudes being poor in spirit, being meek, being merciful, being a peacemaker, being someone that is pure in heart, if you really truly do this, you are going to have people that hate you, 
that see you as intolerant, that see you as everything that's wrong with the world. And yet here's the good news. If you carefully read through these Beatitudes, every single one of them is embodied in the life and person of Jesus Christ. Have you thought about that? If you go back through and you read this list, what you'll see in the life of Jesus is these Beatitudes show up left and right. It's just the way that he lived. There wasn't a person who ever lived that was more meek than Jesus. And meek doesn't mean powerless. Jesus was the most powerful person. The the best picture of this is him with Pilate right before his death on a cross. And Pilate is saying, don't you know that I have the, the right and the power to take your life from you or to spare your life? And I love Jesus's response. No, you don't. I actually could call down 10,000 angels right now and have all of this taken care of for me. I'm laying my life down. That's meekness. Having power, but not throwing it around. It's, it's laying that down. It's being humble. And it's, it's, he, this is the way that Jesus lived. The merciful, who is more merciful than Jesus? He just went around spreading mercy. Peacemakers, Jesus was nonviolent in his response. Uh, Peter, when he's getting arrested, pulls out a sword to guard Jesus, slices a guy's ear off, and Jesus is like, nope, that's not how we do it in my kingdom. Put the sword away. I'm going to just be peaceful in my response. This is the way that Jesus lived, pure in heart, hungry and thirsty for righteousness, persecuted for righteousness sake. These beatitudes are the way of Jesus. So here's my point, and you've got to hear this. I know that you're from Oklahoma. I know that this is how you think. You've been so ingrained with the Bible belt. But if you are going to be a follower of Jesus, if you really are going to follow Jesus, you have to actually look like Jesus looked. You have to. Otherwise, what you're doing is not following Jesus. Are you with me? You can say that you're a Christian. It doesn't hold any weight or mean anything if you don't actually live into the way of Jesus. And this isn't salvation by works. This is he rescues us by grace and he pulls us into his kingdom and he gives us a different way to be human and see the world. And if you don't live into that, then you're just not following Jesus. You can call it whatever you want, but you're not following Jesus. These are kingdom reversals and these are kingdom ethics. That's a whole new way to be human in our world. And if you really do it, it's not going to make everybody around you happy. All right, let's end with this. The third thing, when these two things collide, when you have kingdom reversals where he comes to the ones that are on the top and he says, actually, you're going to be on the bottom. And he comes to those that are on the bottom and he goes, actually, you're living the blessed life. You're going to be on top. And then what he's doing is giving us a a, a kingdom virtue list, a kingdom ethics list of here's how you live, here's how you express being a follower of Jesus in the world. Something powerful happens. This is the whole point. Something powerful happens. Here's the third thing that I want you to see. I want you to see the Beatitudes as kingdom counterculture. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 13. He says, you are the salt of of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is powerful. Jesus comes to those who are followers of Jesus, those who are called his disciples, and he looks them in the eye and he says, you are the salt of the earth. He doesn't say, try to be the salt of the earth. He says, you are the salt of the earth. 
He doesn't say, try to be the light to the world. He says, you are the light to the world. You're like a city. This is like emphatic, true statements. You're, you're like a, a city on a hill that can't be hidden, right? The, the danger here is, is not trying to do this. The danger is that we would have the temptation to dial down salt and to dial down light, what is salt? Well, this idea of salt, both there and their culture and today, is something that it both preserves and it flavors. It keeps food from going bad and decaying, and it flavors the food. Jesus is saying, you are that for the world. You're like this preservative agent in culture. You're not supposed to, you know, pull the Amish card and bail out of the world and try to hide out from everybody. You're supposed to be so in the culture, but radically different from the culture, because you're salt. And you're flavoring the world with beauty. You're living in such a way that you're, 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 you're keeping back the decaying effects of sin. And you're the light of the world. You're like the city on a hill where, where as people are going about their day and interacting with anyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus, they see the light of Jesus shining. It both dispels and pushes back the darkness in our world. You are salt you are light. And this idea of salty brightness is going to be the theme of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. What Jesus is going to do is say, okay, now here's how you become salty bright with anger and what you do with your anger. Here's how you become salty bright with your forgiveness and how you walk in forgiveness. Here's how you become salty bright in your sexual ethics because Jesus is both Lord over your heart and over your physical body. That, that includes your genitals. Here's how you actually submit to the authority of Jesus with loving your enemies. And here's how you be salty bright with marriage. And here's how you be salty bright with a life of singleness. And here's how you live with anxiety. And he's just going to bullet out for us. Here's what salty brightness looks like in the world. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, Jesus is saying, here's the whole new way to be human. Here's how I want you to live. Here's how I want you to be salty bright. So where do we go from here? Well, I just want to encourage you with a couple things. One of the things that's challenging about this sermon especially in our culture of Oklahoma, is that as you hear it, you might realize, you know, I've been saying I'm a Christian this whole time. I've been saying I love Jesus this whole time. But as I read what he actually says, part of it, I don't even know if I agree with or like. And you might even have this realization where you've, like many people in Oklahoma, have just said that you're a Christian. But actually your life is anything but the life of someone who follows Jesus. Do you know what that means? It might mean that you're not a Christian. And that doesn't, that shouldn't freak you out or shock you or make you terrified. What it should do is go, oh, wow, like I've been saying I'm a Christian and I'm not. What does it look like to actually become a Christian? What does it look like to really give Jesus my life? What does it look like to really follow Jesus? See, one of the things that he's doing here with the salt and light metaphor is he's, he's not wanting to give anybody false assurance. Do you know what I mean by that? He says, you are salt, you are light. Um, what's salt that, that has lost its saltiness? Do you know? Well, it's not salt, right? Can salt lose its saltiness? It can't because that's not salt. What's light that doesn't push back darkness? What's light that doesn't light up a room? It's not light. I don't know what it is, but it's not light. Jesus isn't saying try to be salt, try to be... He's, he's coming to his people saying, you are this or you aren't this. If you are this, this will be true of you. If you're not this, then it won't be true of you. So he's not wanting to give anybody false assurance. You need to wrestle with the words of Jesus here. Do these things ring true of your life? It's the second thing you need to do. is to embrace the difference between the way of Jesus and the way of the world. 
I don't know if you realize this, but spiritual formation isn't something that just Christians do. It's something our world does. You're being shaped and formed spiritually, whether to look more like Jesus or look more like the world. Constantly. Social media is doing it, and I'm on social media. Money and success and job and pursuing the American dream, all of it. It's teaching you how to live. And here's what, I, here's what I want you to see, that the way of Jesus and the way of the world, there's a giant chasm between those two things. There's a giant chasm. And so you actually need to embrace the difference of what it means to follow in the way of Jesus versus what it means to follow in the way of the world. And then here's the third thing if you're a follower of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, the third thing I need you to see is that holiness is inherently missional. See, I was a part of the missional movement. If you grew up in church, you might know what that means. Uh, the missional movement was uh, really popular when I was 19, 20, 21 years old. And all these writings were starting to uh, be written. Basically, people were realizing, oh, you know what? Like, Christians are just outdated and really weird. <laughs> like, we play strange music and we look weird and we, you know, we talk in our own Christian subcultural bubble and it's strange for people. So there's almost like this, this push to like, let's just learn how to not be so weird and just be normal. So like the missional like win was like, if you can just show someone in your life that's not a follower of Jesus, that it's possible to be a follower of Jesus and be normal, that's a win. It's kind of like the, uh, the Mormon commercials. Have you seen those? And if you're here, you're Mormon, I'm not dogging on it. I'm just, I mean, I guess I am dogging on it a little bit, but like, here's the Mormon commercial. It's like, I ski and I'm a Mormon. And I'm like, I don't know how those two things are related. I don't know why you had to say that. I, you know, I'm perfectly normal and I'm a Mormon, you know? And the whole goal was like, we just want to show everybody that we're cool too. And that was in many ways what happened with Christianity. We just want to show everybody like, look, I've got tattoos and I drink beer in moderation and I look, listen to the same music and and by the way, I do all of those things, and I have tattoos, and, I, and that was the win. And the win was to have somebody who was far from Jesus go, man, you're just like me. Can I tell you that actually for them to say that is not a win? For people who are not followers of Jesus to look at you and go, there's no difference between me and you, that's inherently not missional. Because the whole point here is that Jesus is saying, no, you are a city on a hill. You are salt. Holiness is missional. The way of Jesus is missional. The whole point is they are to see your good works and then that leads to glorifying their Father in heaven. They're to ask, why do you live this way? Why do you embrace this way of life? Why do you respond with peace to your enemies? And why do you respond with giving mercy to people that don't deserve mercy? And why do you, why do you desire to have a pure heart? Holiness is missional. And if you hear and you're not a follower of Jesus. You're just checking things out. You're kind of just observing and listening. Man, you couldn't pick a better series to jump in and wrestle with the claims of Jesus because Jesus is just laying out for you what his kingdom is, what it looks like, and here's the crazy news. You are invited in. But it starts with you realizing your poverty of spirit, that you have nothing in here to hope in, and you actually need a rescue from the outside. So if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're invited in, come and receive the king. And when you receive the king, you receive the kingdom too.